We're going to be continuing on now with week two of uh, the Sunday School class designed to look at and to equip you all uh, and to encourage us all in the idea of biblical soul care, loving one another, caring for one another, supporting one another, speaking truth to one another, encouraging one another, etc., etc., etc. And uh, so one of the men who's going to be teaching through this series, I'm uh, pleased to introduce him to you, although most of you may know him or be familiar already as he's taught in the pulpit before, but Dr. Dale Johnson is uh, one of the professors of biblical counseling up at Midwestern Seminary, and he also heads up the ACBC, not ACDC, right? ACBC, it's important. I still don't know what the organization was thinking when they gave themselves that acronym. But that's a, that's a digression. ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, he heads that up. Uh, it's just um, a wealth of wisdom, pastoral insight, uh, biblical uh, just awareness and knowledge of how uh, truth and life intersect. Pastor Rick mentioned he's got a book coming out. It says T. Dale Johnson, though. So just be aware of that. Don't be thrown off by that. We call him Dale, but he's known as T. Dale Johnson on his books. The Church as a Culture of Care. So feel free to um, go and get that. I'm looking forward as uh, we go through the series. I'm looking forward myself and for us as a church to being able to benefit from him and his wisdom and his pastoral uh, insight. And so with that, uh, let's welcome Dale Johnson and we'll continue on in Sunday School. Very good. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your kindness for the wisdom that you give to us in your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, help us, Father, by your spirit to understand, uh, illuminate your word to us. God, help us to even catch a vision for how you see the church and the way that you see us so that we can walk faithfully in that. And we want to care well because that mimics you, because you care well for us. And we're so grateful, Lord, for the way that you love us, your kindness towards us. Lord, bless us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I want to start um, this morning just giving an overview. So if you were to think about, uh, maybe think about the class that, that Pastor Rick and Pastor Myrell are doing on Wednesday nights and they're doing systematic theology, uh, think about this as being sort of a, a, a systematic sort of approach to biblical soul care. And the way I'm going to talk about the mission of soul care this morning is I want to give us a definition. And so I've given you the definition um, and I've broken that definition up into three parts so that you can see that. And the first part is uh, the nature of biblical counseling. Now, before we get started, I want to make something super, super clear. When we talk about biblical counseling, most people have this impression when they hear the word counseling, they think of something automatically professional. And what I would caution you against is to um, have a myopic or, or a narrowed view of what it means to counsel. Uh, when we have this mentality of counseling as some sort of formal institutional setting, um, it, it drives us away from the institution of the church, and I think that's, that's a detriment to us. We sort of, in the last 150 years, have, have built this idea of what we think is professional soul care, and I want to tear that down because I think biblically that's not a, a good view for us to, to understand what soul care actually means. Now, can this be done formally? Absolutely. But when we think of counseling, often our mind is moved away from what we would call discipleship. Biblically speaking, that's really the goal of biblical counseling, okay, is we want to see people grow and change and mature because that helps them to walk faithfully in what God intended them to accomplish. And so 
The professionalization of counseling happened uh, really, like I said, about 150 years ago, and it moved into the church, and it sort of drives us away from a normal, what I would consider to be an organic, even spirit-led, word-driven view of how we care for one another. And so when you think about the mission, the mission is ultimately this, is it is our job with each other and for each other by the power of the Spirit of God with the word that he's entrusted to us that we change from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ because that's the most healthy picture of humanity that we know, that, that God has given us. Uh, that's the way we were, we were created in the image of God. And so the process by which we transform or, or conform back to the image of God is through the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in and of itself is the kindness of God, but that's the most healthy thing for us. So when we think about the mission of biblical soul care, the mission of biblical soul care is to make people healthy. And what does that mean? What it means is that we see people conform to the image of Christ. It, notice what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that people's circumstances always change. Because our hope is not driven by circumstances. Our hope is driven by what Christ has promised for us and what he will accomplish in and through us. So when we think about hope, then the, the mission of biblical counseling is that we want to see people uh, respond appropriately to life in a way that's honoring to the Lord, that that's our primary aim. And we'll see this unfold as we work through this, vi uh, this, this uh, mission or this definition, if you will. So the, the first part of the definition I want to see if we can clearly articulate is this. What is the nature of biblical counseling? What, what, what does that even mean? Um, so here, here's the idea, okay? The biblical counseling is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others. And now I want, we're going to break this down, and you'll see in your notes how I've broken this down into different parts and segments. And so as we work through the definition, we're just going to work through the segments. I'm just going to give you some passages of Scripture. I'm going to do my best. Those of you who know me know I struggle um, with not giving too much commentary, and so I'll do my best to keep the commentary at a minimum. I, I want you to encounter the Word this morning as you, as you hear and think about the Scriptures. So biblical counseling is a personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church. It's dependent upon the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word through the work of the Holy Spirit. I wrote this, this part, or these three parts of the definition um, I wrote also with a, a guy, a friend of mine at, at Midwestern Seminary, Sam Stevens. And so here's what we're proposing. Let's start with the, the first part. It is personal. It is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people. Now, when we think about biblical counseling, again, if our mission is to see people conform to the image of Christ, uh, what must be first necessary, right? That, that as we, as the body of Christ, are believers, we're followers after the Lord Jesus. We've, dis, we, we've uh, been changed, made new, been recreated into, uh, given new life, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. And as we've been given new life, now there's a process that happens, a process of discipleship. I'll remind you of a passage, Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, what must he do? He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, this is distinct. Biblical counseling in and of itself, when we think about biblical soul care, is distinct in its worldview. Now, notice when you think about discipleship, man, there are some critical calls here that are in opposition to what you would hear in the rest of the world. There are some critical calls. Listen to that call of discipleship, what it means to follow after Christ, right? If anyone wishes, this is Jesus talking, 
uh, to come after me, to follow me, he's saying, he must do a couple of things. He must deny himself, he must take up his cross daily, and he must follow me. Now, let's do a little bit of compare and contrast. Can we do that? If you compare and contrast what we think is maybe the, the, the world's most prominent view of how we care for people, what is the world's most prominent view for how we care for people? I mean, what do, what do they utilize or what do they employ to think that is the primary way to care for people? This is the participation part, portion of our program. It's okay if you want to participate. What, what would you say is the dominant way of thinking in the world for uh, caring for souls outside of the church? Okay, that was all like mumbo jumbo. I couldn't hear it. Say it loud. Okay, maybe we listen to them. What about the philosophy that's behind it? I would argue that it's secular psychology. Would you agree? That secular psychology with the different 450 or 500 different theories, different approaches to how we think about people and how we care for them. Now, what's interesting about this to me is if you boil all of that, those ideas down, they're humanistic ideas, okay, which means that man is sort of the greatest good. And if you take all of those ideas and you boil it down, essentially what they're saying is that man is good and we have to do whatever we can to fulfill man or to grow man or to empower the self. Now, I want you to pause for a second, because if you were to hear that from a secular perspective and you thought, man, that's the way that I become healthier, this is the way that my soul is cared for, you need to back up for a second, because with a Christian worldview, I mean, from the very get-go, if it's about personal discipleship and that all of life is to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ, well, well that's an issue because uh, we, we have sort of an impasse at this point, don't we? Because this impasse is, Jesus is saying, if you decide to follow me, if you, if you want to come and follow me, what has to happen? You must what? Not build the self, but you must deny yourself. So when we talk about caring for the souls, it has to be consistent with the way that the Bible teaches is healthy for humanity in consistency with following after Christ. So if, if we wish to follow after Christ, we must first deny ourselves and then daily take up our cross and follow him, right? That's a healthy thing for us. That's actually best according to God for our souls. If we were to think about this process of discipleship, this is not just something that professionals do, right? We don't pay the, the pastors and that's, that's what they do, right? We don't do any of this. Of course, they're involved in this. And of course, they lead us in the process of equipping us for the purpose of ministry. And they, they lead us in a uh, process of discipleship. And if you have, you know, primary issues in your life, they need to be uh, one, of the, one of the people that you speak to about some of those issues so that you can get godly counsel uh, but this is a part of a process that we're to do with and for one another. The scriptures make that clear, particularly in the New Testament, when you think about the emphasis with which is put on the, the, the way that we live life together. Now, what God intends, and, and listen, I understand that the, the current cultural you know, milieu that we live in is, is busyness where we see each other on Sundays and then we sort of like pass in the night, okay? Uh, that's really not the way that we were intended to live with and for one another. We were intended to live in fellowship, right? Now, 
I understand fellowship sometimes is around a Chiefs game, and that's all cool and wonderful, but it's just that's not the sum total of fellowship. Fellowship is that we gather together to encourage one another as life is unfolding, as life is happening. We're helping each other to, to think about life from one primary perspective in a way that pleases the Lord. You encourage me, and I encourage you in that process. It's very informal, even organic. And the way the New Testament presents that is at least 59 times with a phrase, one another. There are one another's that are in the scriptures. There are both positive one another's and there are also negative one another's, things that we should do with and for one another and ways that we should not treat each other by, by our judgmental disposition or tearing each other down or speaking to one another in very unwholesome ways. <clears throat> but the scripture describes these things in a positive way. I'm just gonna list a couple of them for you. I want to get your mind thinking about this process of definition. It's a personal discipleship ministry of God's people. Which means if you're God's people, you're a part of that ministry. Let's pause for a second and think about that in terms of counseling or counsel. Uh, how many of you would see yourselves as counselors? Maybe there's a few of you. You're like, yes, I'm ACBC certified. I'm a counselor. Okay, well, that's wonderful. And I would encourage you to do that. It's a really cool thing. However, all of you counsel, every one of you. It's sort of like being a theologian. All of you are theologians to some degree or another. Some of you are really good at it, and some of you, um, um, I don't really know. Maybe you're not so great at it, okay? Uh, some of you are really good counselors, and some of you are really not good counselors, but all of you are to some degree or another. You're like, well, when do I counsel? You ever talk to anybody? Right? You don't even have to say a word, and you're actually counseling people right? Think about the way in which you interact with people. In the things that they say, you're either affirming or denying what they're saying, often even by just the body language or the way that you react to them. That is a part of counsel in your affirmation or your denial of what they're saying or how they feel about a certain thing or how they interpreted this thing or that thing. Now, part of the way that we live life together in personal discipleship ministry is that uh, the way in which we encourage one another, both by body language, the words that come out of our mouth, is to help people to live life in the fear of the Lord, that we understand what happens to us or the experiences that we have are always seen set in the disposition of the fear of the Lord. And so that's a part of our job is that we all counsel one another all the time. So when we think about the one another's, this, these are particular ways in which we are commanded to engage in this type of care for one another. I'm just going to list a few. This is just a few. Remember, there are maybe by the greatest accounting, 59. Some people count like 43, something like that. Uh, but there are many. So love one another. This command is given about 16 times in the scripture, John 13, 34. Um, Jesus even says that the way that people out there will know that you're my people is by the way in which you what? love one another. This is a primary expression of the body of Christ is that we love and care for one another to such a degree that that's our reputation out there. Now, I, I don't know that I've lived here long enough to know, and so maybe you folks can help me, but I can remember serving on staff at a local church in Florida. When I, when I first went there, most of the time, the reputation, not just of our church, but churches in general was that uh, you people are there and you want something from us. That's sort of the way the community thinks about churches, right? But when you love people like this internally, what ultimately gets out is a, is a radically different reputation. What happens out there is now people see, no, no, all these other churches might want something from us, but this church is different. This church loves people. I mean, that's the expression that Jesus says we ought to be known by is by the way in which we love one another. Romans 12 
has several of them, honor one another, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, build one another up instead of tearing one another down. Be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, Romans 15. Admonish one another, Romans 15, 14. Care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2. Forgive each other, Ephesians 4, 32. And then be patient with one another. Those are all things that we've, called, we've been called to do. Do you think the shape of the, the volatility of the current cultural climate right now with all of the issues that we have going on, you think if we were just to obey those few things that the unity that we see among the body and the flourishing of God's people would happen to a greater degree? I think it would radically change the disposition, not just internally of who we are, but the way in which we're seen on the outside. So this is, when you think about biblical counseling or, or biblical soul care, uh, it is personal discipleship ministry. Now, the second statement that we've made is that it's under the oversight of God's church. This is not something to be uh, overseen by the government. I think in terms of what I call jurisdictional doctrine or what historically Calvin called jurisdictional doctrine, uh, a Dutch Reformed theologian also called it uh, sphere sovereignty. And there are three basic institutions, family, uh, certainly individual, but family, government, and church. And church has a responsibility to care for souls. If you think about all of those institutions, all three are ordained by God and they have roles and responsibilities, okay? Think about them in terms of roles and responsibility. I know sometimes we want to say the government is a necessary evil, right? Especially maybe now uh, we think of it in terms like that. But the, the government is not a necessary evil. The government was actually ordained by God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 2 and other places that the Lord raises kings up and he tears them down. He appoints them. And they have a specific role. Romans 13, 1 Peter 5, all these, 1 Peter 2. We see um, all these places, 1 Timothy 2, that the, the, the government has a specific role and responsibility. Okay, I would say the family has a role and responsibility, right? All of you fathers are going to be held into account in the, by the way in which you disciple and teach and train and educate your children. It's a scary thought that we are stewards of that responsibility to God. The church, however, also has a role and responsibility of which we will be held into account uh, by God for how well we do at what he's called us to do, the responsibility that he's given to us. And what we see in scripture is that Christ is the head and we think about how Christ being the head of the church, we've learned this as Pastor Rick has taught through Ephesians chapter one, for example. It's one of the primary places that we see Christ is proclaimed as the head of the church. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important is because if Christ is the head of the church, what Christ came to do for his people now becomes the aim of what we're called to do. It's the responsibility that God has given to us as the people of God. Are you following that logic? So Christ is the head of the church. One of the things we know about Christ is that uh, the way in which he cares for, for his people. The Bible makes very clear in the foreshadowing in Ezekiel chapter 34 that the, the coming of the good shepherd, right? God is indicting all of the shepherds of Israel and saying, you guys are not doing a good job. In fact, you're doing a terrible job. You're not representing me. You're not shepherding my people the way that you ought to. And in verse 16, he makes a transition. He says, but I will send a shepherd. And this is what he'll do. He'll go after the lost and he'll heal the sick and he'll 
bind the brokenhearted. It's a critical phrase that we see repeated in the New Testament and especially uh, fleshed out in the life of Jesus while he's on earth, that that's exactly what he would do is he would bind the brokenhearted. And Jesus's statement in John 10, 10, where he says that he will be the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And then he describes what a shepherd does. He lays down his life for his sheep and then he cares for those who are wounded and broken in heart and in spirit. And now he's entrusted that to the under-shepherds, the elders of the church, and not only the elders as they mimic Christ, but all of you as Christians, those who follow Christ, as you would also in turn mimic Christ in the way in which he cares for us. You think about the way in which Christ cares for you. And so you take that beautiful care that God has given you from his word, the way in which he comforts you, the way in which he takes care of you, the way in which he... Uh, lifts you up in spirit. Psalm 19, verse seven, uh, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It revives the soul. Think about the way the word of Christ ministers to you. And we're called to minister to one another in that same way. So this happens under the oversight of the church, under the authority, I would say, of the church. This is not a squabble that's out in society. God has given us as his people the responsibility to accomplish this work. Think about Hebrews 13, 17. This is what the scripture says. Obey your leaders, talking to all of us that we're called to obey our leaders and to submit to them for they keep watch. This is a continual action. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They are stewards of our souls. So if they are stewards of our souls, who who has the responsibility of doing soul care? It's the church. The church has been given that responsibility. He goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with uh, grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Also think about it in terms of 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul says to Timothy this, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, uh, listen to the, the clause here, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We've been called by God to be the ground or the foundation and the pillar of truth, that which upholds the truth of God's word. We don't create the truth, right? We don't write the mail, so to speak. Our job is to make sure that we guard it, as Paul would tell Timothy. Um, And why? Because it is the truth, the scripture says, that makes a person what? Free. It is the truth that makes a person free. Listen to the language of scriptures. It talks about us being in sin and bondage or darkened in heart or blinded in our understanding or having ears but not being able to hear, eyes not being able to see. It is the church that's been responsible to guard and to proclaim the truth. For what purpose? To care for the souls of people. Think about this in terms of sharing the gospel with a lost person. Is that caring for the soul of a person? Think about the, the statement that Jesus makes. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? How much do you have to hate a person not to speak the truth, the clear truth to them? And if the Lord so chooses that by that word, then he believes based on Romans chapter 10 and his heart becomes awakened, have you not then cared for his soul? Jesus, and then Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 6, in the same way in which you receive the Lord Jesus, which how do we receive the Lord Jesus? We hear the truth and we trust it by what? Faith, in the same way in which you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in him, verse six. 
Okay, so how is it that, that our souls are continually cared for? I don't know if you know, but when you come to faith in Christ, you're not perfect, right? Uh, if you think you're perfect, ask your spouse. And that's, you would know that that's not the case, right? And when you live in close proximity to people, you find out very quickly that you're not perfect and that they're not perfect either. God has a process, which we're going to talk about next week, this process of sanctification. And, and how do we grow in sanctification? In the same way in which you receive the Lord Jesus, so what? Walk in him. So how is he doing that? By the word. And we're to guard as the church, guard the truth and to proclaim it because we are the ground and pillar of the truth. It's the, the household of God, the, the living God. And how are we changed? How does that happen? Remember Jesus's comments in John chapter 17, this whole discourse in John 14 to 17, where he's teaching us about the spirit. He's like, hey guys, I got to have a conversation with you. Uh, he's talking to his disciples and I'm going to go away. And they're like freaking out, going crazy. And he's like, no, no, but I'm going to send another of the same kind. And he's talking about his spirit. In John 17, 17, he's, he's giving his high priestly prayer. And, and what he says is, he asks the Father not to take them out of the world. Don't you find that interesting? He's not, he's not asking God to take them, to take you out of the world, to take the disciples out of the difficulty of a sin-cursed world. He's saying that um, I'm going to walk with you through it. And how is he going to accomplish that? And the way he asks God to accomplish that, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is what? Truth. So how is that process accomplished? By the word. And who is entrusted to guard and to uh, be the ground and pillar of this truth? It is the church. So it is under the oversight and under the authority of the local church. Maybe one more thing that I'll throw in there that I think is really important or really critical <clears throat> is this issue of church discipline. Uh, we don't often like to talk about that, but church discipline actually is an expression of soul care when done biblically and right. The aim is always restoration. Right? The glory of God and the restoration of the individual. That in and of itself is caring for the souls of people. I mean, think about the, the early stages of church discipline should be happening all the time. Why? Because we're not perfect, right? The church is often not a sanitary place because it's made up of sinners. And so as I sin or I respond inappropriately to someone, it, it should be very natural that, that someone who loves me well enough is able to say, you know what, the way that you spoke to that person was, was really not great. Right? And, and my brother wins me, I confess that before the Lord, and I begin to walk faithfully with him in repentance. Do you see the beauty of that? That's the early part. And then if we refuse to repent, it comes to the church, and it's told before the church. And what's the whole point? To restore our brother. That's really the goal. That's the aim of, of soul care. And the next clause, so it's under the authority of the local church. Um, the next clause is it's dependent upon the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. And this is really important because from the very beginning, the evil one has not changed his scheme. From the very beginning, he was asking this question of God and the way in which he deceived people. If you remember the conversation with Adam and Eve, particularly Eve in Genesis chapter three, you remember the, the very first question that he asked was, did God really what? Did God really say? It was a question of the word of God. And listen, if the evil one can begin to make you question the value, the utility, the, the purpose of the word of God for you, the necessity of the word of God for you, for your good, you're already in a path toward deception, believing something else that's superficial, that lacks hope, that lacks ability to, to give you what you need to walk faithfully 
in life. So we believe that this happens under, not just under the authority of the church, but it's based upon or dependent upon um, the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. Now, I want to make sure that you understand this clearly. This is in contrast to believing human wisdom. And one of the things, and I mentioned this before in Sunday school, one one of the things that's really important for you to, to gather, to grasp, to understand in the scriptures is that every time we see human wisdom, it leads somewhere. Every time we see human wisdom, it leads somewhere. Every time you see wisdom that's born from below, it leads somewhere, okay? He said, go back to Adam and Eve when, when he's questioning the word of God and then we have a wisdom, right? It, it's, a, it's a deception of wisdom that they would now see the tree different. They would see the fruit different, that it was a delight to their eyes to make one what? Wise, and where did that human wisdom lead? Destruction to death. And that starts this pursuit of human wisdom. And every time that you see it appear in the scriptures, it leads to death and destruction or disorderliness, if you will. Think about the way Solomon described this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's pursuing all things that are good, that he's a steward of, actually, that God has given him to do. And the conclusion at every single turn when he pursues these things, and the phrase that he uses is under the sun, meaning disconnected from the wisdom of God, trying to make sense of life from, uh, from his own perspective. Remember, he's pursuing good things from God. And what happens? He says these things are meaninglessness. These things are purposeless. These things are, as he would say, vanity. They're like a breath or a vapor of the wind. Now, if you can't see this unfolding in our culture right now, listen, the Bible explains people's experience better than any other approach to human life. And if you can't see this unfolding in the culture that we live in with increased suicide happening all over the place, It makes sense that people who are trying to understand life and the world from under the sun, from human wisdom, what's the end of that? The Bible tells us, doesn't it? The end of that pursuit is meaninglessness, purposelessness, and vanity. So it makes sense that as our world continues to live in that direction, how will people feel? How will they feel inside, vexed in soul, disordered in life, disoriented about all things, trying to pursue things, thinking that that's what gives them meaning and purpose, but what's the end result? The Bible's already written that mail for us. The end result is that it is meaningless. It's purposeless. So when we pursue these things, remember I told you there are over 500 different approaches to soul care in a secular sense. Why do you think there are so many? Why do you think it's not unified? is because one person just sees something a little bit different. They say, well, we should probably change it. That's 500 different approaches to the way people think we ought to live life, why people have problems and how we think they ought to be fixed. And what that does, anytime we pursue those approaches, essentially what we're proclaiming is, did God really what? Say. Because the Bible says that he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And if we're pursuing these other routes of how to understand life and why things exist and what makes us fit in it and what gives us meaning and purpose, we're pursuing life as if God had not spoken about those particular things. It becomes a question of the word. So when we make this statement to say that it is dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of the word, and by the way, those two things are are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. Anytime you have authority, you have to have sufficiency. If the Bible is authoritative, it is sufficient about all the things in which it speaks. 
And it is speaking specifically about the restoration of man. That is the story of the Bible, right? Is man was created for a primary purpose to live in the image of God. That is broken because of our disobedience, right? Man's disobedience to deny the word of God, to trust what God said was good and what God said was evil. We begin to pursue evil because it looked good in our own eyes. And then God begins to write this story, his story, about this one who would come, who would restore, who would redeem all that was broken. Do you really believe it was all that was broken? Everything physically about you as your body's decaying, that yes, you have hope, and where's that hope found? Right, medicine's wonderful, but, but put it in its proper context, right? No matter what kind of medicine you take, you're still gonna what? Die. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. And Lazarus still died. Why? Because the Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die and then the what? Judgment. And where, where do we have hope for that kind of thing? Even physically. In Christ. It's the story of the whole of Scripture that Christ is the epicenter of what it means to be restored and to be cared for in our inner man. And the Bible is the authority and the sufficiency. What do I mean when I say sufficiency the other side? As we can confessionally state that we believe the Bible is authoritative about all sorts of things. But then when we start looking outside, particularly related to our topic, outside and think, well, soul care is given somewhere else. So the Bible doesn't speak about these issues that I have. The Bible doesn't tell me how to live life in relation to these types of issues categorically as if there's some sort of separate psychological issue. Because then you have to compartmentalize man as if he's some spiritual and some psychological, right? I would say the Bible presents us as... Uh, yes, we are physical beings, but all of our being, even the physical things that we do, are all under the spiritual context. Even the, the, every idle word that you speak, the thoughts that you have, will be judged by who? By God, which makes it, therefore, spiritual. He's told us that everything we do in life is to be living with the perspective of making it our aim to please Him. That we live life in purpose to give him glory. That means everything that you do, everything that you pursue is for the purpose of glorifying God. There's not a thing that you do that's non-spiritual. And he said he's given us everything we need sufficient for life and godliness. So when we start looking at a different authority as if it's sufficient, more sufficient about this subject or this topic than the word of God, guess what happens? We begin to deny the Bible its sufficiency. And ultimately, history has taught us this, that ultimately when we pursue something else, thinking the Bible is not sufficient to cover what we specifically need for life, guess what goes with it after a few decades? The authority of the word begins to wane in the hearts of people. Why? Because something else becomes your authority, right? Carl Rogers becomes your authority about problems. Sigmund Freud becomes your authority about problems. Albert Ellis becomes your authority about problems, who is the, um, the theorist behind REBT, or Becks. Uh, the Becks become your authority about anxiety, right? cognitive behavioral therapy. And you begin to deny the sufficiency of the word. Listen to the way the word describes this. Pastor Rick was talking about this even Wednesday night. So what he says, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, listen to what he says, listen to the purpose, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for how many good works? Only spiritual good works. No, no, he says every 
good work. That is a statement of the authority of the Bible to accomplish its work and its sufficiency to help you to do the things that you need that are necessary and pleasing before God. Now we got to hurry. First Corinthians 2. Paul says this, and when I came to you, this is Paul when he came to the Corinthians. Remember all the problems that the Corinthians had? You remember all those problems? I mean, you can name them. They are myriad problems, okay? Sexual immorality, they were suing each other. Um, they were having all disputes. They were wanting to follow Apollos and Paul and all these different people. And all these very detrimental, deep, difficult things, even the, the issue of death, which he encourages them with in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, Paul comes to them in a specific way. He didn't say, well, about the spiritual things, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But about all these other things, I'm going to give you some other types of advice. Listen to the way Paul does this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is profound. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest, listen to this, on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, for us to, to be a church that cares well, we have to make sure that the wisdom that we pursue rests upon the power of God and not on the wisdom of men or else the, the hope that we're pursuing is superficial. What is it that passes away? Everything under the sun passes away, but it is the word of the Lord that will stand forever. The next thing is it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say that all the other approaches to soul care are essentially a, hij a hijacking of the sanctification of the scriptures and also a replacement of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we grow and change and we become new and we're made at peace by the power of the Spirit through the Word. And so any time that we pursue some sort of change or making ourselves feel better, we're pursuing that outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. So those, those approaches essentially become a replacement of the work of the Spirit. So this happens through the Spirit. Read John 14 to 17. You can make that maybe one of your readings this week. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 tell us the beauty of the power of the Word of God and the work of the Spirit. It's what he says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature that's hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do or to whom we have to give an account. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. How are we transformed? In the way in which the Spirit unveils and helps us to see the Lord, the glory of the Lord. As we behold the glory of the Lord, the Bible says that's how we are what? Transformed or changed. That's how our inner man is able to walk at peace with the Lord. Do you see that? We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're changed into the image of Christ, which is the purpose for which we existed to begin with, the, to reflect the character, the nature, the image of God. And he goes on to say, so that your faith would not, I'm sorry, um, so he goes on to say, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's how we walk in the Spirit. It is necessary. Now, let me go really quickly. What is the goal of biblical counseling? I don't want to continue this Johnson reputation. All right. What is the goal of biblical counseling? I'll finish the definition. The biblical counseling seeks to reorient 
disordered thoughts, desires, affections, behaviors, and worship toward a God-designed anthropology in an effort, that just means a God-designed view of man, in an effort to restore people to a right fellowship with God and others. Notice the, the two great commandments. And the whole purpose is to reorient ourselves because sin broke that orientation with God to where you are created to be a worshiper. You will always be a worshiper. It just depends on that which you worship. You will either worship, right? One writer says it like this, only two options on the self, pleasing God or pleasing self. You will worship created things and honor those things or you will worship the creator. Sin jades our heart and jades our mind and jades our affections to love the things that we can see with our natural eyes more than we love the creator. And biblical soul care seeks to, by the word of God, by the power of his spirit, to reorient our affections, to reorient our desires. For what purpose? Because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Everything that you think, everything that you say, and everything that you do makes a statement about God. So you need to make sure that in your responses to every single situation you find yourself in, are you oriented to God and fear him in such a way that your responses in thought, action, deeds, attitudes are a reflection of the character of God and your fear of him. That is your service of worship as Romans 12, 2 would describe. So we, we seek to use the scriptures by the power of the spirit through the preaching of the word and through the personal ministry of the word that we would reorient our desires, our loves, our thoughts, our affections, our worship toward a God-designed anthropology. What do I mean by that? And I'll just mention several passages, Colossians three seventeen that we reorient ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, listen to this, for the love of Christ controls us or it compels us, it motivates us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died, talking about Christ, for all, so that they who live, listen to this, this is beautiful, so that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you see the, the reorientation that happens, the changing of heart that happens? Now when we're motivated by the love of Christ, that is the primary motivation for us to see the depth of the love of Christ on our behalf. And listen to 1 John 2, 15. I think I put 1 John 3. That is a mistake. I'm just checking to see that you guys are paying attention. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and all of its lusts also. But for, for the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's the reorientation. We love him, not other things. Romans eleven thirty six 36 to 12, 2. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Why were you made? By God and for God. So that everything that you do, everything that you engage in, your work, I don't care what it is that you do. You don't have to be a pastor for your work to please God. Like everything that you do in life, when you speak to your wife in the kitchen, that is for the purpose. It is for God. Everything that you do is for his sake, for his name, and for his glory. Think about that in the way that you speak. It will change in the fear of the Lord the, the way you're reoriented in what you love most. And then he goes on to say, therefore I urge you, brethren, because of that, because you were made by him and for him, 
and through him. I urge you, brother, by the mercies of God to do what? This is a natural response when you see God for who he is. When you, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, when you behold the glory of the Lord, this is a very natural response for us that we lay down our life as a living and holy sacrifice is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, reorienting your worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, what? Reorienting by the renewing of your mind. That's the idea. Romans 8, 28, 29, you can see, same idea. Right fellowship with God, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace with which we stand. You are at peace with God because of Christ, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has. He renews that fellowship. Do you see the two commandments, two great commandments as Jesus would mention in Matthew 22, laying out that we learn to love God, we're rightly oriented to God, and that must come first. And then we're rightly oriented to others. We often think that, man, my communication is bad. I need to go see a therapist and figure this out. Listen, what's primarily wrong with your communication and the way that you speak, what's coming out of your heart, the reason it's coming out of it that way, you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. When you're squeezed with a bad situation and what comes out of your mouth is, comes out because that's what's in there. And we say and do things in a certain way. So oh, I need to go to a therapist, figure out how to communicate better. No, you don't. What you need to do is be in right fellowship with God. And when you understand right fellowship with God and you submit to him, giving your life, knowing that your life is not for you, your life is for Christ. And when you live life in, in way, in relation to him, guess what now changes? There's a flow that happens to it. Now I love other people in a way that pleases him. Do you see the difference? And I speak to them not for me, I speak to them for them. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome communication proceed from your mouth. Only such a word that's edifying, it brings grace to the one who's hearing. Now you speak for them because your life is to please God. Right fellowship with others. All right, last, maybe give me a minute and we'll, we'll be finished. What's the method? What's the method? This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love and applying scripture to the need of the moment. By com uh, comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance. Do you see the two categories there? Comforting the suffering and calling sinners centers to repentance. Uh, thus, working to make them mature as they abide in Christ. This is the way in which we accomplish this. This is the method. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. As a result, we are no longer to be tossed uh, like children to and fro by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes, but command, by the way, speak the truth or speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And what will happen? We'll build ourselves up in love. Verse 16 tells us, speak the truth in love. We don't just speak the truth harshly without love, right? That leads to legalism, okay? And we don't just speak love, which is mostly what's happening today because we're all tender, psychologized people, is we think we can't say anything that's truthful to people. So we just speak in love, with no truth. That's a drift from the truth, which leads to a detriment to our lives. It has to be tethered together. And that's the beauty of walking in Christ is you can speak firmly the truth, but you can do it in a way that shows that you love that person. And you know, if they keep walking the way that they're going, their life is going to be led to destruction. Speak the truth in love. That's the primary method. And we apply scripture to the need of the moment. First Thessalonians 5.14, he says this, we urge you brothers to do what? To admonish the unruly encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. You see the three categories there? You don't just take the, the word as some hammer and everything's a nail and hit people with it, okay? 
It's not the idea. When people are unruly, they're rebellious. You admonish them. You confront them with the word of God. When they're faint-hearted, they're tired, weary, and well-doing, you encourage. You take the word of God with the beauty uh, of the word of God as honey, and you encourage their hearts. When they're weak and immature, right? You, you, you're patient with them, and you, you work with them based on the scripture. You apply it for the need of the moment. And the scripture does that work, comforts them. Second Corinthians chapter 1, this is what Paul says. We went through all this affliction so that we, the comfort that we received from Christ, we could comfort you. This was the idea. And then we call sinners to repentance. This is a part of the one another's, Hebrews 3.13, right? That we do what? Take care, brothers, that there not be any, uh, any one of you that's evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin so that none of you will harden your Harden your hearts. And then the whole point is to conclude this, that we learn to be mature in Christ so that we abide in him. The most healthy thing for you to do in your human existence is to be conformed to the image of Christ and to grow in maturity in Christ. That's the most healthy. It doesn't mean your situation's gonna change, but the outlook in the way that you see everything will be radically different because you are hopeful in the proper things. You're hopeful in the promises of God. That's what we're aiming at. And how do you do that, John 15? John 15, that you, you walk abiding in that which gives life, which is Christ. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we care for one another, is we help each other to mature in Christ, to live life constantly abiding in Christ so that we bear fruit of the vine, which is Galatians 5:22, Love. All the things that people are seeking, why they seek counsel to begin with. They don't love well, they don't, they don't care well, they don't feel well. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let me pray. God, we're so grateful for the time that we get to spend together, the beauty of your word that encourages us our heart. And God, I pray that you would help us to aim at this mission here at Mission Road, that we would love one another and care for each other well by the clear method that you've given us in your word. You've given us the power of your spirit, the Godhead who has spoken and things came out of nothing. And yet you've given us your wisdom to care for us in this broken and sin-cursed world. May we take up this word that you've given us and may we encourage each other with it. In Christ's name, amen.